Well, good evening, everyone. This is a Thursday night lesson at West Houston Bible Church. Uh, Robbie, I believe, is on his way back now, and we should be in tomorrow sometime. And so we're looking forward to having him back on Sunday. This is the fifth lesson in the uh, Jude series. Uh, I believe he's going to do some more, so that we'll have more in the future when he's gone. And it's been a very good series. We really appreciate his extra effort in doing that for us. So I'll just turn it over to the technician, and we'll get started. Thank you. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that if we are to do anything in this life that has eternal value, first of all, we must be regenerated or born again, the Scripture says. We have to put our faith uh, in and trust in Jesus Christ, and that means that we have eternal life. But when we sin, and as Christians we still sin, we have to be restored to fellowship with God, which comes simply by confessing our sins to Him. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we have your word to study, that as we explore the depths of your word, it It gives us so much insight into the nature of the reality that you have created, for you have created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. Now, Father, as we study your word this this evening, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study and that God the Holy Spirit would help us to see how these things fit together and that we may have a greater understanding of all that we have in Christ and all that has been provided for us and especially of your protection of us and the security that we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're continuing our study in the book of Jude. If you have any trouble finding the book of Jude, that's because it's just one page just before the beginning of the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. So it is a very short book of only 25 verses. And as we saw last time in our study of the first verse, there are a couple of important things that are emphasized. And what I've learned over the years in studying Scripture is that when we look at the beginning and then we look at the end of any book of Scripture, any especially the epistle, epistles, that we usually get some clues there as to what the writer thinks is important and significant and somehow related to the main message, the body of the of the epistle. Last time we began just looking at the first part of, uh, of verse 1. Jude, a, a bondservant of Jesus Christ 
and brother of James. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. And I just noticed that I broke the second part of that verse down and labeled it verse 2 in that slide, which is erroneous. That's all part of verse 1, but the sec- it's the second part of verse 1 because that um, emphasizes a uh, textual problem between uh, the uh, some of the older manuscripts and the vast majority of manuscripts. The Texas Receptus, which lies behind the uh, King James Version and the New King James Version, is in many cases uh, identical with the majority text, but not in all cases. There's uh, numerous differences between the two, and so uh, I prefer to go usually with the majority text, which in this case reads, sanctified by God the Father. And the second part of that uh, uh, introduction, identifying those who are the recipients of this epistle, we have the phrase preserved in Jesus Christ. And that word that we find preserved is the perfect passive participle uh, of tereo, which means to keep, to preserve, or to obey in, in some cases. As a perfect participle, it indicates past completed action with an emphasis on ongoing results. So we are kept, and it is a permanent keeping. Just the grammar alone emphasizes that we are permanently kept uh, by Jesus Christ. What's interesting is when we come to the end of the epistle and we get to Jude 24, that we have a similar phrase. It's a little bit different. It emphasizes something a little uh, slightly different from just uh, the eternal security of the believer. And this is the, f- the phrase, the opening of the, bened- of the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now the fact that it focuses on being kept from stumbling is important because the real challenge that we have in this epistle is not to stumble, not to fall into false doctrine, not to be seduced by uh, false doctrine. And this is always a problem in Christianity. The uh, Christian church has always been influenced by the thinking of the world around it, and the thinking of the world around it is the thinking of Satan, and it is extremely subtle, it's complex, it's sophisticated, and it's attractive. And even more so today, after 2,000 years of almost 2,000 years of church history, we understand that there are uh, numerous uh, philosophical systems, uh, rationalizations, uh, different uh, religious systems, all of which purport to give everything that Christianity does and more. And they have added revelation in some cases. They have uh, brought in new, sophisticated Uh, scientific or psychological uh, data, and it appeals to our sin nature. Our sin nature has a natural attraction or affinity for these these systems because at the very core of our our sin nature is this desire to somehow be self-sufficient, and the focus of the sin nature ultimately is on uh, human independence from God, being able to solve our problems on our own terms. And that's what these other systems offer, no matter how close they may be with biblical teaching in uh, 90, 95, 98% of what 
these systems say it's the that other part, the 5%, the 3%, the 2%, the 1%, that is different, that changes everything else. And so what we're told here is that Christ is sufficient to keep us from stumbling. The Word of God is sufficient to keep us from stumbling. But the word that is used here is the Greek word philoso, which is used in several other passages as a term that is synonymous with tereo, and also emphasizes eternal security. That is, that God is the one who secures the believer in his salvation, in his new status as being in Christ, and that cannot be lost. Because the believer does nothing to gain salvation, the believer can do nothing to lose salvation. And so it's interesting to see that that the message of Jude is bracketed by an emphasis or an orientation to eternal security in the in the opening uh, salutation and at the end in the closing uh, benediction. So I thought it would be uh, profitable for us to stop and look at the doctrine of eternal security. So just a little review. I introduced this last time. Just a little review to orient us again. Was that in terms of eternal security and in terms of just a basic introduction, uh, many Christians reject the idea of eternal security. Now, in the United States, you have, among the various denominations, you have, you, you could probably divide, divide them into a, uh, two large groups. One group is the group that is, that is influenced by uh, Roman Catholic theology. And in some sense, that also applies to those who are in East, the Eastern Orthodox churches, uh, Greek Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. Uh, all of the, those churches that are influenced by ultimately what we would call Roman Catholic theology, which is pretty much set before the split that occurred between West and East. Um, some things changed after that. This split was primarily over the authority of the Pope, so that's one thing that's different. It was also over uh, changing the authority to change earlier creeds, and it was also over the date of, date of Easter. But so most of what we think of as Roman Catholic theology is is somewhat set prior to the, the, the split between East and West, and there is no eternal security in that theology, in either Orthodoxy or, or in um, Roman Catholicism, because the idea is that somehow you gain grace through works. So it doesn't matter how they cloak it, how they disguise it, how they wrap it up in uh, other terminology to indicate that they somehow understand or think of it as being related to grace. They distort the meaning of grace. had a conversation, I remember one time, with a Roman Catholic who was commenting on something I was doing and said, boy, you're earning a lot of grace. So their concept of grace is warped, and it, it takes a lot of time. When you're talking with someone who has been seduced by Roman Catholic theology or Greek Orthodoxy to come to understand what they are really, truly saying. I remember when I first started taking uh, graduate-level courses in philosophy at the University of St. Thomas, there was another uh, pastor, Dallas Seminary graduate, uh, Grace gospel believer who was also in that program, and we would sit for hours with uh, the uh, 
uh, professors over there who had tremendous education. That's one thing about the Roman Catholic Church is they provide a tremendous education. And it would take hours and hours of very fine-tuning arguments to finally be able to expose a little bit the idea that their concept of grace wasn't really a pure, true gift. So that's that's very important. So many Christians reject the idea of eternal security. You have that strain. Then among Protestants, you have a lot of Protestant denominations that do not believe in eternal security. You have a large number that do. Many Calvinists affirm eternal security, but as I pointed out last time, it is related to their understanding of the perseverance of the saints, that final P in the acronym TULIP. TULIP speaks of the five points of Calvinism, which really were not Calvin's five points. They were developed by the uh, Dutch Reformed Church in the midst of a controversy in the early 1600s at a uh, synod called Dort as they were uh, confronting the teaching of uh, someone, uh, uh, Jacob Arminius, who had by this time died, and he was represented by uh, the foremost theologian in that uh, theological camp, Derek von Kornherd, and so it was at the Synod of Dort that these five points were were uh, articulated. The T for total inability, the U for unconditional election, the L for limited atonement, the I for the irre- for irresistible grace, and the P, which is what we're talking about in relation to eternal security, the P for perseverance of the saints. So there at at Dort you had this division between those who were Arminians who believed that basically that everybody is born in the same state as Adam and that they could make uh, good, righteous choices in life and not uh, need to rely exclusively upon the cross and that their salvation was totally, totally dependent upon their will and therefore they could, they could choose to make, uh, or they could make choices that would cause them to lose their salvation. In Arminian theology, in the five uh, points, or the five, they were called remonstrance uh, of the Arminians, they believed that a, that a person who had once believed in Jesus could disbelieve in Jesus and lose their salvation. Now, as I have on the screen, I have two groups. I have the Arminian group and the Lordship group, and you find representatives of both of these groups in many denominations, although in most Presbyterian uh, denominations they would be in the Calvinist camp. Lordship is actually a subdivision of of uh, Calvinism. It is represented as an... as a uh, Today it's really become a dominant group. It was represented by, a lot by Puritan theology in the 1600s, uh, Jody Dillo, in his uh, book on the reign of the servant kings, talks about them as experimental predestinarians. Uh, that's a large, two large words that you usually don't find together. But the idea was that they would determine if they were among the elect or the predestinated by looking at their works, and if they had works or fruit that was in keeping with their sal- with with salvation then they knew they were saved. How do you know if you're saved? Not by looking at the promise of the New Testament that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, 
but you know that you were saved by your works. So it's not a, you don't have faith plus works as the gospel message. You have in lordship, salvation, faith, but if it is the right kind of faith, if it is saving faith, then it will automatically uh, be joined to certain kinds of works to give evidence that you have the right kind of faith. According to many in the Reformed or Calvinistic or Lordship camp, you can have a faith in Jesus that is not a saving faith. And so it's very confusing. There's no scriptural evidence whatsoever for that position. Uh, they sometimes use a cliche that says something along the lines that uh, while we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. And this is not scriptural whatsoever. And in the Lordship camp, it is that right kind of fruit uh, which is really your basis for assurance of salvation. Now, we believe in what has come to be called and identified as the free grace gospel. Uh, free grace is something of a redundancy, but it's been necessary because of the theological discussions. Often what has happens in the history of theological refinement is that you use a word, and that word starts to become redefined. So in order to clarify what you mean by it, you have to add an adjective to it. You see this in the debate over over the authority of Scripture. First of all, we simply said that we believed that the Bible was the Word of God. And everybody meant that they believed that God authored, inspired the writers of Scripture so that the Scripture was without error and absolute authority and infallible. But before long, the term Word of God became uh, perverted. People who said they believed the Bible was the Word of God were really saying they just believed the Bible contained the Word of God. Much of the Bible was just man's opinion, but it, some of it was the actual message from God. So we had to change that meaning to the infallible Word of God. And then before long, infallible began to be redefined, and the... Uh, uh, they had to say that uh, that inspiration was uh, verbal and plenary. So we believed in the verbal, plenary, infallible, divinely inspired Word of God. And then in the there were some great battles over inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture in the 60s and 70s in numerous denominations. Uh, the Missouri Synod was a Lutheran, conservative Lutheran denomination that had some major battles, and initially they won those battles. Uh, usually these battles are lost because the trend of the evangelical church is to go downhill. Another uh, organization that uh, suffered loss in this battle was Fuller Theological Seminary. Fuller Seminary was originally named for Charles Fuller, who was a conservative inerrantist believer, a uh, believer who believed, uh, a Christian who believed in the infallible, inerrant word of God. But his son, Daniel, was sent off to a study in Europe. And when he came back after getting his Ph.D. overseas, he had rejected uh, uh, inerrancy of Scripture. And so Fuller Seminary began to drift away from its historical roots and it and the found from the founding of Fuller Seminary to its drift was pretty quick. By the late 60s, it had 
completely slipped its anchor to the infallible, inerrant uh, Word of God, and the consequences of that were pretty tragic, and they have had an enormous impact across the board. And uh, I'm just going to give you a little hint because of what we're studying in Jude. We'll come back to see how this has has impacted evangelical Christianity, but one of the uh, one way in which it did was in the whole arena of the role of the Holy Spirit in the church and the rise of the signs and wonders movement, also called the Vineyard Movement, um, also called the third wave of the Holy Spirit in the church age, and this was the result of a course that was taught at Fuller Seminary by a man named John Wimber, and by another professor there by the name of Peter Wagner. Peter Wagner's name is a name that pops up in the background of a lot of, uh, a lot of heresy and perversions and, uh, distortions in the mission and role of the church in the last 40 years. He's also, Peter Wagner is, is also the grandfather, we, we might say, of the entire church growth movement. And he is connected with uh, people like Robert Schuller at the Crystal Cathedral, who also plays a major role in this. And these men, uh, like Peter Wagner, uh, uh, Robert Schuller, Fuller Seminary influenced one of their graduates um, who leads a purpose-driven life. And Rick Warren uh, comes out of that Background, and there are other connections that I will, uh, I'll bring in when we get down into the, uh, next couple of verses because these, these trends, these ideas sneak in. And we'll notice that, uh, verse four of our text says that, uh, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. And that's what happens is first you, 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 you slip a little. And then you slip a little more, and then you slip a little more, and these ideas start to permeate uh, the thinking of the Christian community. And one day you wake up like we do now in the uh, second decade of the 20, 21st century, and we look back over 50 years of evangelicalism, or 60 years back to uh, just after World War II, and we see how uh, we don't, the, the church and what happens in most evangelical churches in this country doesn't bear any resemblance to what happened, uh, what went on in churches for 18, 1900 years prior to that. And this change comes because of this slippage that occurs. Uh, and w- one of these areas I pointed out is in the area of vocabulary. The area I use as an example, inerrancy. Now we say we believe in that the original autographs, that's the original writings, were without error. They were inerrant. They're infallible. They are inspired verbally and plenarily. That means every word and the totality of Scripture is breathed out by God. All of that simply to say the same thing that a hundred years earlier could be stated by simply saying you believe the Bible was the Word of God. And that's happening in doctrines of salvation now. You, don't, you used to be able to say you believed in the grace of God, but that's been perverted by Lordship's advocates, and now you have to say you believe in the free grace of God. Who knows what we will add 
to that in future generations in order to clarify the concept that salvation is a free gift and we do nothing to earn it or deserve it. And at the heart of this is this issue of security and what secures the believer and what is the basis for our assurance of salvation and what is the basis of our uh, conviction that no matter what we might do, uh, whatever we might think, whatever we might say in our Christian life, that nothing can ever cost us this prize, this gift that we have been given of security. So I began with the definition last time just to give us a little bit of an idea of of a more precise definition, and that is uh, the 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 eternal security is the work of God toward the believer at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. Since God saves us, he also keeps us. Man does nothing to earn or deserve the free gift of salvation, and therefore he can do nothing to lose the free gift of salvation. If you uh, think that there is something that you do to that you can do to lose your salvation, that trust me, somewhere in your thinking or the thinking of a pastor or a teacher of this, there is something that we do to save our to save ourselves. The problem, as I identified it under point number two, as it is expressed today, is uh, within the Calvinist lordship position and the um, free grace position is one of eternal security versus perseverance. There are have been many Calvinists and many high Calvinists. Now, the term high Calvinist is really a technical term for uh, a Calvinist who holds to the five points of the Synod of Dort. Now, uh, not, uh, and usually then you'll hear the term four-pointer, and that refers to somebody who believes in four of the five points, and usually the difference between four-point and five-point is on the doctrine of limited atonement, the L, which is in the middle of the word uh, tulip. And we define both of these theologies by flowers. See, Arminian theology is the daisy. You know, God loves me, God loves me not. God loves me, God loves me not. So these are the two flowers of theology. But Lewis Berry Chafer, for example, believed in perseverance, but when you read what he says about perseverance in his systematic theology, he doesn't hold to a lordship view of perseverance. He holds to an eternal security view that the believer, that it is Christ who perseveres in keeping the believer saved. It is not the believer who perseveres in his faith that keeps him saved. So the lordship problem means that you really are never sure if you were saved because you are not sure that you might not uh, say something, reject Christ, turn from him at the end, and thus indicate you were never truly saved. In the Arminian problem, you can just simply lose your salvation. The Arminian problem is that you get your salvation, but then you can lose it. The more sophisticated lordship view with its backdoor 
uh, view of works is that you were never saved to begin with. So they don't believe you lose it. They just believe you could never, um, you may not have been saved to begin with a false, false faith in Christ. Well, I looked last time at some statements, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we see how subtle it is that the, the one whom God hath accepted in his beloved, but Maybe you weren't really accepted because you didn't have the right kind of faith. So you see that that even on the surface, you may read this and say, oh, I think this is a good statement. Maybe not. Uh, you have to understand it in the context of the theological system. Sometimes reading theology, theological statements or uh, doctrinal statements is a little bit like reading a legal contract, probably because many, many uh, theologians were lawyers. Men like Schofield, Darby, Calvin, Luther all had legal training. So they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere. Who is the subject of that verb? Shall certainly, who perseveres there? The they, they whom God hath accepted shall persevere. So again, it puts the focus not on God who perseveres or Christ who perseveres in keeping them, but on they who persevere in their faith. I also cited a quotation from Louis Burkhoff, well-known Reformed theologian, stating that the doctrine of perseverance requires careful statement, especially in view of the fact that the term perseverance of the saints is liable to misunderstanding. We should guard against the possible misunderstanding that this perseverance is regarded as an inherent property of the believer or as a continuous activity of man by means of which he perseveres in the way of salvation. So he tries to go in the direction more like, like Chafer, that man isn't the one who perseveres, but it is God. Uh, Charles Hodge, another very well-known uh, uh, Calvinist theologian, taught at Princeton uh, during the mid-19th century that, and stated that uh, uh, in the bottom definition there, perseverance and holiness, therefore, in opposition to all weakness and temptations, is the only sure evidence of the genuineness of past experience. See, it's that experience. What, what Dillow called that experimental uh, pre- predestination. On the Arminian side, looked at the statement from Robert Shank that there's no saving faith apart from obedience. See how faith it gets redefined as obedience. And then Arthur Pink, God pre- preserves his people in this world through their perseverance. So we have these different subtleties. So as we go through the doctrine of eternal security, having identified what the problem is and the misstatements and misidentifications, what I want to do is look at the role of each member of the Trinity in maintaining our security. It is God who keeps us. We do not keep ourselves. So the first area is the purpose of God. God has a clear purpose stated in Scripture, as I pointed out last time, Romans 8, 29, and 30. God's purpose is that he will glorify those whom he has justified. 
and therefore God is able to control the process. He is in charge. He is sovereign. That doesn't mean he overrides our volition, but it means that there are elements of the the salvation transaction that are secured by him. It is not all of man. Man simply exercises his volition in a non-meritorious way towards the cross. The merit is in Jesus, not in the faith. Then coming to the fourth point, I think this is where uh, I get into some new material this week, is it's the power of God. Notice Jude one twenty four, the passage we will see when we come to the end of our study. Uh, Jude, uh, well, actually, I got those slides backwards. First verse I want to look at is James 2.10. The problem that we have in understanding eternal security is that people have a low view of God, they have a high view of, of man and man's ability, and they have a low view of sin. Uh, and so that because they have this this uh, the, this low view of sin, they think that somehow man on his own, because they have a high view of man, can overcome the sin problem. They don't understand how extensive, pervasive sin is. Sin is a constitutional defect from Adam on. It permeates every cell in our structure. It permeates uh, every thought, every act, every deed prior to our salvation. Uh, there is nothing we do that is not energized by the, quote, flesh, a term the Apostle Paul uses to describe the sin nature. Uh, James, in James 2.10, says, Whoever shall keep the whole law, all 613 commandments, and yet stumble in one point, just one part of one commandment, there's a slight violation. James says he's guilty of all. So if you just tell a little white lie, just a little exaggeration, then you violate the entire Mosaic law. You're guilty. You're just as guilty of breaking the law as if you had gone out and committed mass murder. And so that is the sinfulness of sin, that sin is any act, thought, or deed on the part of the creature wherein he acts independently to any degree from the authority of the Creator, and in doing so violates the righteous standard of God. And so to understand eternal security, we have to understand the totality of our depravity, not total inability, which is the Dordian statement of the tea in tulip, but total depravity. And total depravity doesn't mean that we are as depraved as we can be or that every act of every human being is extremely depraved. It means that in the totality of our being, everything has been corrupted by sin. Everything has been impacted by sin. And so there is not one thing that we can possibly do to gain God's approval. There's nothing we can do so that, that, that isn't tainted by sin. And the least little sin, the least little distortion means that we're guilty of all. And so when you stand before the, or when a, any person stand as a sinner stands before the bar of God's justice, 
no matter how moral they may be, no matter how religious they may be, no matter how upright they may be in their life, that they are viewed by the righteous standard of God as being as dark and depraved and sinful and corrupt as the most evil mass murderer, uh, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, name your, your, your violent, horrible, evil person, and they are no better, they're no worse than the most moral of individuals who has failed to trust in Christ alone. All are completely, totally corrupt in every aspect of their being. And that, that doesn't mean that they can't do relatively good things. They can't be nice people, wonderful people, productive people, but that in terms of their being evaluated by the absolute pure perfection of God's character, they have all failed and failed uh, miserably. So we see in Jude one twenty four that it means that only God is able to solve that sin problem. Jude one twenty four closes with the benedictory statement, Now to him, that is to God who is able, he's able because of his power. Uh, this word able relates to his omnipotence, which means God has the power and the capability to accomplish whatever it is he sets out to accomplish. He can keep us. Nothing is more powerful than God. Nothing is greater than the omnipotence of God. So he is able to keep us from stumbling. And in context, as I say, that stumbling relates to falling into into the... Uh, he's able to keep us and to keep us from falling into false error. That doesn't mean that a person will not do that but it means that by relying exclusively upon him, we cannot fall into error. And it also indicates and implies that he keeps us, because of the next phrase, he keeps us secure because he not only keeps us from stumbling, but he is able to make us stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Because that is not based upon who we are internally. He doesn't change us to be blameless people, but we are blameless because we've received the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We're blameless because Christ is blameless. We are blameless because by faith in Christ, God has reckoned or credited or imputed to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ so that he is able to keep us and to make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. Now, another uh, tremendous verse for understanding eternal security uh, and the role of God is in John chapter 10. John, the Gospel of John chapter 10, verse 29. And this is in a statement that is uh, a mirror of uh, the previous verse, which was a statement of the son's role, Jesus' role in keeping us, but I'm focusing just here on the power of God. Jesus said, my father, who has given them to me, that is the sheep of his pasture, those who have believed in Jesus Christ 
for salvation. He says, my father who has given them, that is every person in history who has believed in Jesus Christ. My father is greater than all. This is a term related to God's power and ability. He is greater than all. And no one, not Satan, not any demon, not any individual, not even the person himself, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And it's interesting that the word that is translated snatch here is the uh, same Greek word that refers to the rapture, an immediate grabbing of something. So uh, it is the, the, the fact that in the Father's omnipotent hand, we are held like a pen or a pencil. And just as no child, no baby, no infant could take this pencil out of my hand, there is no way that any individual, any person, any creature can remove us from the hand of God. He he is the one who holds us and keeps us. So this is a, a tremendous imagery here of the power of God. The use of the hand in relation to God's power is a common uh, figure of speech, uh, common anthropomorphism uh, to indicate the power, the uh, ability of God to accomplish uh, what he sets out to accomplish. Some other passages that also speak of the power of God are Hebrews 7.25. Hence also he is able, this is referring to now to Christ, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. And he always lives to make intercession for them. So he is able, this is referring to God, I mean to Jesus Christ the Son, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God. So it refers actually to the omnipotence of the Son uh, rather than the Father here. Uh, it's another passage, First Peter 1, 4, and 5. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So we have this inheritance which is uh, imperishable, cannot be... Uh, taken away, it's reserved in heaven for us, and then the, the, the you, referring to believers, is further defined in verse 5 as those who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it is through faith that we have that salvation, but it is the power of God that protects us and preserves us till our final destination and glorification. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced or persuaded that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So first of all, he says, I know in whom I have believed. That's the gospel. That's believing in Jesus Christ and that he is the one who paid the penalty for all of our sins and all of our individual sins, all of my sins, so that I know that because all of my sins are paid for, I am secure. Paul goes on to say, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced or persuaded that he is able. That's that word for power again. He is able 
to guard. Here's the Greek word philoso. This is the same word used there in Jude uh, 24, that um, to him who is able to keep us. Here it is translated to guard us. It means to guard, to keep, to protect us. So what is it that we have entrusted to him? We have entrusted our salvation to him, and he is able to keep it because no one is able to snatch us from the Father's hands. So all of these verses together speak of the power of God. Power of God the Father is the one who keeps us. Now the fifth point in eternal security represents the love of God. The love of God. God's love sent the Son. God's love is such that even though we were enemies of Christ, as stated in, and of God in, in um, verse 8 of Romans 5, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were enemies, while we were hostile to him, while we were obnoxious to him, while we were as dark as we could possibly be, blackened by sin, to the greatest extent, God's love was such that he sent a perfect solution to us. He sent his son in order to die on the cross for us in our worst state. So if God loved us in our worst condition and provided salvation for us in our worst condition and saved us in our worst condition, then can we do anything worse in our, in our Christian life that would cause him to take away that salvation? Well, of course, the answer is no. There is nothing that we can do in a regenerate state possessing the perfect righteousness of Christ that is so great that it surpasses all of the condemnation and corruption that we had prior to salvation. Romans 8, 38 and 39 is another great verse. This is a, a, a couple of verses that should be memorized as uh, to uh, uh, give us confidence and assurance in our salvation. For I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I remember when I was, when I was, uh, probably in junior high, maybe even elementary school, I was, uh, witnessing to a good friend of mine, and, uh, uh, he had said something that, uh, you, maybe you can do that and lose your salvation, and I quoted this verse, and he said, yeah, well, that's Paul's persuasion. Yeah, but Paul's persuasion is a persuasion that comes from his, the fact that he is an apostle, but his persuasion is that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's not just saying nothing can separate me, meaning Paul. Uh, if he had said that, perhaps we might be able to say, well, you know, Paul was spiritually mature. He knew that he would not do anything to lose his salvation, but it might not apply to anyone else. But in that last line, he says that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love sent the Son, and God's love, his perfect love, secures us and keeps us 
so that we can never, ever lose uh, our salvation. The sixth point in understanding eternal security is the promise of the Son, the promise of the Son. And also this relates to the pro, uh, the power, the power of the Son as well. John 10, 28. We looked at John 10, 29 a moment ago. Uh, these are two verses you should also memorize. Uh, as uh, three, Everyone should understand three or four key verses and have them memorized so that they can be used in uh, your discussions with unbelievers or weak believers to help them understand their eternal security. In John ten twenty eight, Jesus says, uh, in reference to the sheep, that ha- those who have believed on him, Jesus says, I give eternal life to them. And what Jesus gives, he doesn't take back. Jesus is not someone who says, I'll give it to you on certain conditions. There are no conditions stated in the Scripture. Uh, Jesus isn't one to say, I'll give it to you, but uh, oops, if you make certain mistakes, I'll take it back. He uh, He doesn't give it conditionally. He doesn't qualify it. He says, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. He doesn't say some might, a few might perish. He says they, meaning all of them, shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Now, pay attention to the these pronouns, these third-person plural pronouns. I give eternal life to them. The them refers to a set group of people who have believed in Jesus for their salvation. Let's say it's 10 trillion, okay? And then he says, and they, that is, no one in that 10 trillion shall, shall perish. They shall never perish. It's not going to be uh, 9.8 trillion that never perish and 0.2 trillion perish. They, all of them, shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them, that same group of people, that same number, not any more, not any less, but that set number, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That's when he goes on to say in in the next verse that my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. So we see in verse 28 of chapter 10 that the promise of, of eternal life and eternal security is not conditional. So, uh, and second, that the promise is from the one who holds the universe together. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says that, that in him all things are held together. He is the one who created everything. He is the one who sustains all of creation. So that the one who keeps the atoms from flying apart, don't you think he's the same one who has the same power to keep you from losing your salvation. And uh, then the third, a third observation here is in the, order, uh, the word order in the Greek text. The never is emphatic. The never shall they perish uh, would be the uh, way it's emphasized in that, particular, in that particular passage. The seventh point has to do with the prayer of the Son. Remember, Jesus interceded for all believers in John 17. This is the true Lord's Prayer. 
uh, where Jesus uh, prayed on behalf of those who believed in him. And this is a model for to help us understand how Jesus prays for us even today. Uh, he continuously prays to the Father that the Father would keep us in our salvation. Since Jesus' prayers fulfill all of the conditions God has laid down for answering prayer, God always answers Jesus' prayers. In John 17, 2, Jesus states that he has authority to give eternal life to those the, who the, uh, those the Father gave to him. And then nine times in this prayer, he refers to believers as those whom the Father gave him. So those whom the Father gave him, to them Jesus gives eternal life. John seventeen eleven, Jesus said, I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name. There's that word again, keep them, tereo, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Son of perdition refers to Judas Iscariot. He was lost because he was never saved. Uh, John seventeen thirteen, Jesus goes on to say, But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then in verse 15, Jesus prays, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So he prays for the Father to keep us secure. Well, next time, we'll come back and look at uh, the remainder of our points on eternal security, review a couple of things related to uh, what I've said so far in these first seven points, correct a couple of things, and then we'll go forward. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study uh, these things, study your word, to be reminded of the fact that we are saved by what Christ did. We are saved by your power we are saved and declared righteous by your judgment, and nothing that we do makes us savable. It is what you have done. Therefore, nothing that we can do renders us unsavable, causes us to lose our salvation. We are kept by you so that nothing, nothing can snatch us out of your hand. Father, we thank you for this assurance of our eternal security, and eternal salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.